Good morning. My name is Becky, and I'll be reading the scripture this morning. The Lord said to Joshua, Finally, I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they, sh- that they may know that, so that I was with Moses, so that I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who hear the Ark of the Covenant. When you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said so the people, to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you in the Canaanites, the Hittites, the the Hivites, the Perizzites, and the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore, take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of all the priests hearing the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. This This is the word of God. Thank you, God. Thank you, Becky. Um, In our pre-service meeting, Becky thanked me for not giving her a difficult verse, but uh, as I look at that now, I think I did. I think last time she read for us, she had to read all those same strange names of all the the Canaanites. So thank you for reading that tough text. Um, I'm going to I'm going to catch us up where we have been from Joshua 1 and 2 to get to Joshua 3. Quickly recap Joshua 3. Um, but I, I first want to say that Joshua 3 is about nearness. The details of the ark and the instructions in the crossing the Jordan can distract us from the point of Joshua 3 being God's presence with his people, which is abundantly more important. God's presence with his people, his nearness to his people, is far more important than what he does for them. In Joshua 1 and 2, we saw that God's promise to his people His promise with Israel was a relationship. And through that relationship, a land. We saw in in Joshua 1 and 2 that God commanded Joshua, the leader of Israel, replacing Moses, that he's free to be strong and courageous because God has promised to be with him. He's free to approach and obey God's instructions because God's presence would be near. We also see that God's promise for Israel to take up this promised land, to come in and drive out God's enemies and take up this promised land is coming true because as we saw in Joshua 2, Rahab herself declared the goodness of God that he's already begun to melt away God's adversaries. And so we see in Joshua 1 and 2 that God proves himself to be true 
to his promises. We'll see in Joshua 3 that God proves himself to be true to his promises. In Joshua 4, we'll see that he proves himself to be true to his promises. In Joshua 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 and on and on, every page of Scripture shows us that God proves himself to be true to his promises. And do we remember what the promises of Joshua are? First and foremost, do we remember Joshua 1, 5 and 9? What does God promise Joshua and his people Israel? I will be with you. I will not let you go. I will not forsake you. I'll be with you and I'll lead you and I'll guide you. Follow me and you will have success. How and why God leads Joshua across the Jordan River represents to us the necessity and the availability of God's nearness. The necessity and the availability of God's nearness. Because as as God leads Israel into this promised land, he gives them this hope of living as his children, living as a new kingdom, He gives them the framework of flourishing and says, go and and be my children because I'm your God. We cannot and we will not live as God's children by keeping our distance. We cannot and we will not live as God's children by going in our own direction. If we want any hope of living this new life as God's people, we must maintain nearness to him. And so we see in Joshua 3 that 14 times in 17 verses, the Ark of the Covenant is mentioned. And even more than that, the presence and the nearness of God is repeated. We must maintain nearness to God. But that, that's easy to say. That's an easy thing to preach, Right? We think about our lives, we think about what Brian brought up earlier this morning. There's a lot of reasons that we don't draw near to God. There's a lot of reasons that make us feel like we should, but we choose not to. For some of us, we may feel unworthy. We may feel, we may have have mislearned or misunderstood that when we sin, God is repelled by us that he runs far away from us in our sin. I want to emphasize that is a misrepresentation of who God is and how he acts towards his children. For some of us, uh, we may also feel like God is angry with us or that he's disappointed in us because we haven't prayed, we haven't read scripture, we haven't come to church as often as we think we should. But like Brian said before, God's love for us, and the songs even preach that, God's love for us is not measured by the things that we do. What about how prayer makes us feel? Um, Does prayer feel overwhelming? When we're drawing near to God in prayer, sometimes we get distracted Uh, because we have so many things we can pray about, or we come to a blank and we have no idea what to pray for. Prayer can feel overwhelming at times. Does anyone 
ever feel like maybe when you pray, you're not actually doing something? I'll just, a uh, moment of, of confession. For me, I find it way more easier. That didn't make sense. Way more easier. I find it way easier and more satisfying sometimes to learn about God instead of be with him. Anybody relate with that? And even while Brian led us in our call to worship this morning, I'm sitting over here, I'm like, yeah, I can think of a lot of times that, a lot of things I I did and said that I regret this week. Um, And as we were singing, I just had an overwhelming sense that I just need to worship more. Drawing near to God in worship and in prayer. Those two things are inseparable. Prayer is worship. Worship is prayer. And so drawing near to him through singing his praises. And that I often feel like prayer is not doing anything because, uh, as you may know, uh, as we uh, confess often, I'm addicted to performance. I'm addicted to productivity. I'm addicted to doing and work. And so stopping to pray feels like I'm not doing anything because prayer is not doing. Prayer is being. A simple definition for prayer I'm going to read it so I don't mess that up. Simple definition for prayer. Where did it go? Hold on. I'm going to have to come back to that. (laughs) These are my notes, guys. (laughs) Ah, being with God, sometimes talking to him. A simple definition for prayer is being with God sometimes talking to him. Um, At the end of of my time today, I'm going to offer some help with some of those things, some of those things that make us reluctant. I want you just to to think about and feel what you feel. You're allowed to feel. Feel what you feel when we talk about prayer, when we talk about nearness with God. I'm going to come back to that, and I'm going to offer some encouragement, some comfort, and hopefully some help how to address those things, and how to draw near to God in spite of um, what, what begs us to, to be drawn away from him. But as we journey through Joshua 3, there's two important concepts the Holy Spirit wants us to focus on when we're talking about God's nearness. First, God gives an invitation for nearness. God gives his people an invitation for nearness. You see, God is always near. God is omnipresent. That means he's everywhere. And so whenever we sin and we assume that God runs from us, that's just not true. When we assume that he's angry and disappointed in us, that's not true. He's continually inviting us back into his presence. God gives an invitation for nearness. Number two, God produces obedience from nearness. Our nearness to God produces faith that leads to obedience. Yeah, we're going to talk about James 2, don't worry. God gives an invitation for nearness, and God produces obedience from nearness. And we'll start with number one, because I've heard that that's where you start with things. We'll start with God's invitation for nearness. In verse 1, Uh, Becky didn't read this, but we see in verse one that Joshua rose early in the morning and he led the people of Israel out of the place Shittim. 
the Acacia Grove. It's this forest outside of, of Israel, outside of the valley, Jordan. He leads them from Shittim into, uh, towards the river. Do we have that map? Was I able to send those? No, sorry. I had a map. I was unfaithful to communicate that with our team. Sorry, guys. Um, we'll show you, Brian will show you next week. We'll show you the, the map next week. So it's about 10 miles. Think 2 million people, roughly. A camp of 2 million people walking 10 miles downhill from the mountains and the valleys, or the mountains and the, the forest into the valley where the, the Jordan River rests. And we learn that the Jordan River at this time is at flood capacity. It's later in the spring. All the, the spring uh, headwaters are melting now from the mountains, these mountains where the false gods of Canaan live, supposedly. And the, the, the river is flooded. And God um, mirrors a miracle that he did back in Exodus 14. Uh, I'll explain that later, getting ahead of myself yet again. The officers, as, as Israel's by the Jordan, on the edge of the Jordan, the, the waters are flooding. And these people are thinking, okay, it's two million people, men, women, children. How are we going to get our kids across this? We heard in Joshua 2 that the spies got back and forth pretty easily. But what we learn now is that it's at flood capacity, and the fords where you could cross are covered with water. And we're supposed to take our children across this raging river. Well, the officers command the people in the midst of the camp, when you see the ark move, follow. Now, real quick, the ark of the covenant mentioned here 14 times in 17 verses. The most important thing you need to know about the ark is that it's the physical representation of the presence of God. It's a, a wooden box, intricately crafted, covered with gold. It's a holy object, so much so that because it represents the physical presence of God, the priests who carry it aren't allowed to touch it or they die. There's a couple of stories about that. The priests who carry it aren't allowed to touch it or they'll die. And we learn here in Joshua 3 that all of Israel has to keep a half a mile away. They have to keep a safe distance away from this holy object. Now, because this is the representation of God's presence, Israel knows anytime the ark moves, God is moving. Anytime the ark is still, God is still. This is important because, like I said, the false gods of Canaan were said to dwell up in the mountains north of the river. It was a pretty common thing in ancient Middle East uh, religions for the, the gods of the people to dwell far away, to dwell off in the mountains or off in a garden. And so when we get to uh, Joshua 3 and we start talking about the Ark of the Covenant, which is detailed in the book of Leviticus, we start talking about the Ark we start to wonder who this God is because God makes his presence with his people. Where the false gods of Canaan dwell far away from their people in the mountains, the God of Israel, the one true God, our God, has decided to dwell with his people. But the officers 
give a peculiar instruction. So in this first paragraph, we see the officers don't just say, when you see the ark move, move. They say, consecrate yourselves. Uh, I honestly don't know the last time I consecrated myself, so if you aren't sure what that word is, you're in good company. Um, Consecrate yourselves. Consecration uh, is a physical, another physical representation of a spiritual reality. To consecrate oneself is to purify yourself of the things you carry from the world. You bathe. Water was not as plentiful in ancient Israel, and so um, bathing was not a daily occurrence. Washing and changing your clothes was not a daily occurrence. But to consecrate yourself means to make yourself ceremonial, ceremonially clean, to change your clothes, to take a bath, to abstain from rich foods and physical intimacy. This is a physical purification representing a spiritual reality. Now, that spiritual reality is only something that God has control over. Only God can spiritually and truly consecrate and purify. So this consecration was meant to grab Israel's attention, to remind them, one, of their identity as God's chosen, holy, and dearly loved children. But also, it it was kind of a way to shake them gently awake from the normal and mundane life, to purify, to consecrate themselves was to, to shake them awake and say, hey, God's on the move. Watch the ark. We're about to do something big and new. In the Old Testament, this invitation to nearness with God, this representation of the ark, it had its protective boundaries, like I mentioned. The priests couldn't touch it or they'd die. The people had to stay a safe distance away. Eventually, when the temple was finally erected, even, even in um, its tent form, but especially in its actual building structure form, there was protective barriers between the people and the ark because it was such an important representation and object of God's presence. But these boundaries emphasized the spiritual reality of our brokenness, that we needed more than just a God to dwell among us and to be in our midst, we needed this God to dwell within us, to change us from the inside. We can't change from the outside. This washing and purification, this consecration was temporary. It didn't even take till the end of the day to get dirty again. The protective boundaries over the presence of God in ancient Israel was a foreshadowing to the fact that God would later send his own presence to be not just with us and among us to be but to be one of us to live perfectly under these instructions and these laws of God God knew that the boundaries were on purpose and he knew that there was a deeper inner problem to humanity and so when he chose the people of Israel he didn't choose them arbitrarily he chose them with a plan sin The rebellion of sin was not a surprise to God. And the ark was not a band-aid. It was looking ahead to when God would send his son Jesus. God the Father sent God the Son to die on the cross so that those protective boundaries didn't have to exist anymore. 
Hebrews 4 captures this perfectly. Let's look at the connection between God's holy presence and this new possibility to not just stand at a distance from God with protective measures, but to draw near, so near that we become one. Hebrews 4, starting in verse 14. Remember, it's, it's the priests that carry the presence of God. And they're not allowed to touch it, but listen to this. Verse 14, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. I struggle with the double negatives there. If you wrestle with those double negative sentences, that means we do have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weakness. He didn't dwell far off in the mountains. He came to be one of us, to be like us. He made himself weak as one of us. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Let me repeat that. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Why? That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When we feel like, oh, God's going to be so disappointed in me because I haven't prayed in such a long time. I haven't read my Bible in such a long time. When we feel like he runs away from us in our sin, let Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 remind us that we can, in Christ, when we hold fast to our confession that he is Lord and Savior, we can, in Christ, draw near to the throne. We can draw near to the Father with confidence. And what are we met with? Grace and mercy. Jesus made it possible for us to draw near to God because he became one of us, fully God, fully man, in order to live the perfect life so that our sin and our death would finally be dealt with. That's not our our reality anymore. We have access to the Father because when we trust in Jesus to have dealt with our sin forever, now the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God, God the Holy Spirit dwells within us. And that's that's a strange thing, right? We're not like, we're considered the new temple. Our bodies are the new temple. But the boundaries, those, those boundaries of distance, those boundaries of purification don't exist anymore. Why? Because the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross erased the necessity of those boundaries because God now sees you as consecrated because Jesus was a pure sacrifice. God now sees you as a pure child. He's chosen you. He's made you holy. And he loves you dearly. We can draw near to him with confidence. And this isn't just like some arbitrary fact that we find in in Joshua 3, if we read between the lines a little bit. It's not even something that we see um, arbitrarily in the New Testament. Like, okay, Jesus saved us. 
here's all the things you're supposed to do. Oh yeah, he made it possible for you to draw near to God now. Don't forget about that part, but let's go and do all these things. The whole point of our existence is that we would draw near to God. Why are we made? Have you ever heard that question? What's the meaning of life? The answer's not 42. I don't know what other silly answers in comedy films people come up with. The meaning of life is that we would be with God and enjoy him forever. That we would find our fullest satisfaction in God the Father. Because he dwells with us and in us now through the Holy Spirit. This leads us into our second concept of nearness, Joshua 3. So the first, remember, is the invitation for nearness. The second is God produces obedience from nearness. Verses 7 through 13, I'm going to run through these um, next two paragraphs pretty quickly. 7 through 13 is the command of Israel's instructions. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to follow the ark. Once you see the the foot of the priest get to the edge of the Jordan, watch what happens. Just pay attention and follow it. Then verses 14 through 17 record Israel following those commands and obedience without exception and without hindrance. So we get God's instruction for moving into the promised land, and then we get the obedience of the people. This is a rare, miraculous thing that all of Israel obeys completely without flaw. It is about to be crushed, just to look ahead. That's not going to happen for a while. But the obedience, let's talk about the obedience of Israel. Because when we draw near to God, when we trust and follow him, remember, um, God gives Joshua the instruction, be strong and courageous, I'm going to be with you. We kind of summarize that as the freedom to trust and follow. God gives us the, the freedom and the ability to trust him and follow him. And so when we say in Joshua 3 now, when we trust and follow God, he will produce obedience in you. He will give you instruction. He will give you a desire to obey. He will give you the power and the ability to obey. We just have to choose to trust him and follow him in that obedience. Look at uh, verse 7 of Joshua 3, verse 7. The Lord said to Joshua, now look at verse 9, and Joshua said to the people, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. There's a lot of uh, instruction in this second paragraph, but it's rooted in the very beginning of that paragraph is the Lord said to Joshua, and then Joshua says, not, hey, I've got some things to tell you. He says, draw near and listen to what your God has to say. He's giving him the instruction straight from God because they made an agreement, remember? In the beginning, the very beginning of Joshua, they said, we'll trust you, we'll let you lead us, and we'll obey you just like we obeyed Moses, only if you're present with God. And so it's, it's almost like um, the things that God promised Joshua to be near are true because the Lord talks to him, And Joshua's promise to his people to be near to God is true because then Joshua says, hey, let me tell you what God told me. 
And so again, we see this repetition of God's faithfulness proving true to his promises. And what are those promises about? His nearness. That we don't have to worry about what's coming at us because God is near to us and he will guide us through. We don't have to stand in front of a flooded river and wonder how are we going to get to the other side to access this promise that God gave us. We can trust that God is near to us and he will lead us across. And so these waters, they don't just part. Like in the Red Sea in Exodus 14, God parts the Red Sea and we see these walls of water right next to Israel. This is a little bit different because what we see here is the waters coming from those mountains where those false gods are said to dwell. They dry up. In Israel, two million-ish people cross not on muddy, sloggy, gross, swampy water, uh, mud. They cross on dry ground. Israel doesn't, they don't also miraculously open their eyes and they're all of a sudden on cross. Oh my gosh, how did God get us across those waters? We'll never know. It'll never be recorded in history. But he stopped the waters and allowed them to cross. He led them to cross as an act of obedience. Now, why does God repeat this miracle in Joshua 3 that he gave in Joshua or Exodus 14? Why does he do that? He's allowing Israel to have a deeper faith in him and what he does. By repeating this miracle, by mirroring this miracle, he's giving them a greater faith to say, well, God has done this before. We're gonna see him do it again. And he proves himself true. And every instruction that he gives Joshua, that Joshua gives the people, comes true. And every person, safely, every child, every infant, every piece of food that they had, every piece of equipment, every donkey or camel or whatever it was that they carried their stuff with, made it across. The waters were held back until the last person crossed. God's nearness with his people produces faith that bears the fruit of obedience to his commands. His commands to trust and follow and his commands to love and care for one another and the world. Remember, the promise of the land was not just that God said, all right, I'm gonna give you the land, so it's gonna be awesome there. I'm gonna give you the land, was his promise, so that you would bless the world and show them that I am God. Faith and understanding are meant to lead to action. And so when we think about something like James 2, 17, when it says, Faith without works is dead. That often makes us uncomfortable. Especially uh, in, like, like, we're part of the Acts 29 network. There's a lot of, like, hyper-reformed theology. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, justified by faith alone, which is true. That was an awkward point to take a drink. Sorry. <laughs> These true things can be elevated so high that we run ourselves scared of actually walking in obedience. And I, can, I say that personally. I say that as a, a conviction that I've felt as I'm writing this sermon and talking about obedience. We have a responsibility to obey. God calls his people into obedience. And James 
presses on a point of sensitivity to say that faith without works is dead. What he means is, if your life is not producing good works, if your life is not producing good and living fruit from the Holy Spirit, you've got to diagnose the problem. It's probably whether or not you actually believe the gospel. I've got to say this with a lot of tenderness. But if we are finding ourselves not walking in obedience to the commands of Jesus that we see in Colossians 3, we paint that picture of flourishing, that we'd bear one another's burdens, that we'd forgive one another, that we'd love each other with the love of God, that we'd serve one another. If we are not walking in obedience in our love of one another, we must ask ourselves, what do I believe about the gospel? Do I believe the gospel? We've got to consider what are the things we're willing to compromise about the gospel to make ourselves more comfortable, to hold a grudge just a little bit longer, to reserve, to, to protect ourselves in front of the church, to not be united in love and sacrifice. But we also see in, in Matthew 28 when Jesus says, go and make disciples. If we are not making disciples, we must ask ourselves, do we truly believe the gospel? One, do I believe that I am saved and I have not earned salvation in Christ? but it's given to me as a free gift. And we also must ask ourselves, do I expect other people to earn their salvation? When we looked at Rahab, Rahab is a typical picture of what we expect uh, the world to, to move from this sin-filled life. You've got to clean yourself up. We've got to change your behavior. You've got to consecrate yourself and wash the world off of you. What we're really expected to understand what we're really drawn to in the scriptures is that the presence of God inside of us changes us and consecrates us and he purifies us from the inside. And it's through the Holy Spirit dwelling in us that our outside is changed. We're not, we're not in this. We don't trust Jesus just to, behave, just to change our behavior. We don't go and make disciples to make our kids act better to make our neighbors stop partying on the weekends. The presentation of the gospel to those who don't believe is an offer to heal them from the inside out, and that is not a work that we can do. That's only the work of the Holy Spirit. God has promised to be near to us. He invites us into that nearness, and he leads us into obedience. If you've ever read the Gospel of John, chapters 13 through 17, the upper room discourse, right in the middle, Jesus gives us this promise. He says, I'm gonna be in you, you're gonna be in me. Stay connected to me, be near to me, and what will I do? I will produce the fruit in your life. Obedience begins with nearness. And it's through nearness that we learn who we are, we learn who God is, and we trust and follow. There's, there's a lot of ways to practice nearness. We talked earlier about uh, worship. Worship is 
um, drawing near to God. We're going to get the chance to do that again here in a second. But we also learn uh, that reading scripture is drawing near to God, being in community is drawing near to God. Uh, We don't have enough hours in our service today for me to cover all of those things. So I'm just going to focus in on prayer. Nearness through prayer. And I'll remind you of that definition. Prayer is being with God, sometimes talking to him. Now, that can be a matter of seconds. It can be five minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, multiple hours. It doesn't matter the time or the technique. It doesn't matter. Prayer is being with God, It works best for me if I am able to get away into a silent place, put my earbuds in, but I've got four kids, not possible all the time. Usually only happens when I'm at the office. And I know that a lot of us, we just don't have the opportunity to get away. Brother Lawrence, a 17th century monk, Brother Lawrence says in his flagship work, the practice of the presence of God. If you've not read that, See if you can find an abridged version or, or, or a, like a recently updated version because he's a little hard to read, 17th century monk, the practice of the presence of God. But he says in his book that we have every opportunity to pray. We have every opportunity to pray uh, verbally, to speak with God, but also to pray silently, to simply just be in his presence no matter where we are. He tells stories of being around the busyness and the hurry of the marketplace and he's with God. While he's doing dishes, and the other monks are around him baking bread or cleaning uh, the kitchen, and he's able to be present with God because it, it takes practice. It takes a regular consecration of ourselves, to use Joshua's words. And I want to remind you again those feelings that I asked you to consider when we talk about prayer, when we talk about nearness with God, Think back about those feelings, and let's sit with those for a second, reminded of what prayer and nearness to God makes us feel. Sometimes we feel like we're not doing anything when we pray. A lot of times it's probably easy for us to be distracted by all the thoughts in our heads. Maybe we're bored because we're so constantly, uh, we're so used to constantly doing that we find it hard to just be. I think we could probably pare down most of our reasons to either misunderstanding who God is or misunderstanding who we are. Those are the, the, the root symptoms of why we don't find it easy or enjoyable to pray. We, we misunderstand who God is, so we feel like he's mad at us. We feel like he's pushing us away when, we, when, we, when we're wrong or we haven't come to him. Or we misunderstand who we are, and we think that we're just, we're just human doings, not human beings. Right, Lonnie? He says that a lot to me. That we're so addicted, we're so seduced into an addiction to performance and productivity by our culture that we find ourselves unable to pray or un- not desiring to pray. Now, I need to say this too. It's easy for us to motivate ourselves into doing something with shame. And think back on what Brian started this service with. Even when we find ourselves addicted to performance and we're distracted or we're bored or we just don't want to pray, we'd rather learn about God, he still 
gives the invitation to his nearness. So I need to remind you of two very important things. Prayer helps us remember that God does not need our productivity, but he finds the most pleasure in our presence. And so here's the two things. Sorry if you thought that was the first thing. (laughs) To fight discouragement in prayer, we've got to remember that we are always beginners. You ever feel like you're, You've been, you may have been a Christian for decades. Do you ever feel like you're a beginner at prayer? We are always beginners. In Matthew 18, Jesus tells us that God's kingdom requires us to be like children. What he means is that we've got to set ourselves free from thinking we've got to be professionals at anything. We are not professionals. We are always beginners. There's no such thing as a professional prayer. When you understand and you find comfort in the fact that we are always beginners, you'll find yourself free to pray. The second thing, we are always beginners is number one. The second thing is God is waiting with joyful anticipation. That means he's not disappointed in you. He's not angry in you. He's not waiting for you to get your act together. He's not sitting there with his arms crossed. God is waiting with joyful anticipation because when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we we swap places. This pure and holy son of God trades places with us to make us the pure and holy children of God. And so when God looks at us, He sees that we're made new in Christ. He sees us as we truly are spiritually in him, that we're pure and blameless, above reproach. He can't be deterred from us because his genuine and eager love for us draws him near. We are always beginners and God is waiting with joyful anticipation. So when you find yourself in prayer distracted or bored, think of it as a new opportunity to turn back to God. And he's waiting. He's excited for you to come back. As long as you are in Christ, and if you're a Christian, if you've put your faith and your trust in Jesus to save you from sin and death, as long as you are in Christ, uh, if you are a Christian, you are always in Christ. As long as you are in Christ, God will always be patiently waiting with joyful anticipation. Brother Lawrence, I finally have my Brother Lawrence quote for you. Any remembrance will always be the most pleasing to him. One need not cry out very loudly. He is nearer to us than we think. God has promised to be near to us and in us through his Holy Spirit. He invites us to be near to him in prayer. And he uses that nearness to produce faith that leads to obedience. Now, communion. Oh, good job. Nobody started packing up. Man. Why do we practice communion? Communion is a holy memorial for the church. If you're not a follower of Jesus, if you have not trusted in him, We're going to ask that you would refrain from the elements. 
But I want to ask that you would consider. Ask yourself, why? Why do I not trust? With what has been presented to you today in song and in, in preached word and in scripture, what's stopping you? Take this time and consider trusting Jesus to save you from sin and death and that he has an open invitation that you would draw near. For the church, in the same way that the ark reminded Israel of God's tangible, physical presence and nearness and his activity for good, for their good, communion reminds us that Jesus is God's nearness. Communion reminds us that our nearness to God was made possible through the broken body and the spilled blood of God the Son, Jesus Christ. Holy Father, we thank you for what you've given us in your Son. We thank you for your nearness in your Holy Spirit. Would you please, God, would you give us more of your Holy Spirit? Would you give us more of yourself would you lead us to worship? Would you lead us to remembrance? That we would trust your goodness and we'd follow you all the days of our life. Consecrate us, God. Make us pure and holy. We thank you for your son, Jesus. It's his name that we worship, that we gather, and that we pray. Amen.